Good morning. We're reading out of Romans, uh, Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider the sufferings of this present time that are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation wakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so Romans 8 is where we're at again. Natasha and her husband had been longing for a child for a while. And she finally conceived after five years of trying. And along the way in that process, they learned that uh, their child was going to be a girl. And they decided to name her after Natasha's mother, uh, who died when she was young. Throughout the pregnancy, they read every book on what to expect and prepared and dreamed and planned in the nursery and all those things. Everything was set. But their daughter was stillborn, suffocated by the umbilical cord. The only memory they have is of her blue still body and the sense of guilt that somehow they had failed her when she needed them most. Not knowing how to deal with that sort of pain, their marriage began to deteriorate. They began to lash out at one another through violent tears, and it tore them apart. Natasha's husband began to have an affair at work to find an escape and conversations with this co-worker and convinced himself that he was really in love with this other woman. When Natasha finds questionable emails... He lashes out, he blames her, and promptly files for divorce. Within a year, he is remarried and has a child, a little girl, with this other woman. Natasha's dream life now being lived by another woman. Because she's not really a fighter, she loses big in the divorce settlement and has, has to get a second job as a waitress just to make ends meet. Driving home late one night from this job when she falls asleep at the wheel and she has a wreck. 
Not only was her car totaled, something she could not afford, but she also crushed two vertebrae in her lower back. The surgery required uh, more money than, than she had uh, to fuse her vertebrae together. And for the rest of her life, she's going to experience a limited mobility, chronic pain, and be labeled disabled. People tried to comfort her. And they brought up verses like Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And while she could give mental and theological assent to that verse, it did not change her feelings, the feeling abandoned and rejected by God. But even then, uh, people would come to her with things like Romans 8.28 and try to tell her that there's going to be good come from all of this, all this bad, all this suffering in her life. God is going to work it together for good. Just wait and see. Friends would try to comfort her with that verse, and it would just make her angry. What possible good could God bring from all of this pain in my life? What, how is there possibly some silver lining in all of this suffering? How could he work any of this for good? Have you ever been in a situation that feels hopeless? Have you ever been in a situation that just feels like meaningless suffering, meaningless pain? Have you ever walked through suffering or pain or hurt with someone else and you felt like there were no words you could give to help? There were no words, no Bible verses, no comfort that you could ever extend to somehow mend the wounds and mend the suffering. The fact is, most all of us in this room have walked through suffering of one kind or another. And if you haven't, just wait. You will. This world is cursed, the Bible tells us. Its world is marked by suffering, marked by pain. And everyone is trying to mitigate that suffering, trying to navigate that suffering differently. And let me be clear, how we choose to navigate suffering will make all of the difference in the world. It is a given, it is to be expected that we are going to experience pain, we're going to experience suffering. But the hope that we have, the way we think about and understand that suffering will either cripple us, lead us to despair, or will keep us afloat in difficult times. So this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 8 and we look at this great passage on suffering, I want to expose three myths. Three myths that we sometimes believe about suffering. Four, three wrong ways to view it. And then I want to show you the four hopes Romans 8 gives us that will enable us to walk through suffering without being crushed by it. So three myths and four hopes. Myth number one, if we live a good life, we can avoid suffering. Myth number one, if we live a good life, we can avoid suffering. You know, many people and many Christians believe that if they can work hard enough and be good enough, be faithful enough to God, then they will be able to avoid or at least lessen or mitigate the suffering that is going to come in their life. That God will be so pleased with them that he might keep suffering back from you because you've been such a faithful servant. The first problem with this line of thinking is the same problem when people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? See, the problem is there are no such thing as good people. There are simply degrees of bad people. 
The reality is when I say I'm a good person, I am, all I'm actually saying is that I'm less bad than that guy over there. I'm not as bad as him. I'm less bad. But no one is good. And if God came down and said, okay, you know what? I will get rid of all of the bad people on the, on, on the earth. Then there would be nobody left. And besides that, Paul in this text makes it clear that suffering is actually to be expected, particularly in believers' lives, followers of Jesus' lives. In verse 18, he says, the sufferings of this present time, meaning suffering is just the reality of the world we live in, and even believers and quote-unquote good people are going to walk through suffering. Paul goes on to talk about how the whole world is aching under this corruption. And nowhere here or in the whole Bible does it say that good people or Christians or the faithful or the holy or anyone can avoid suffering by being good or holy or faithful. In fact, it says the opposite, right? Jesus tells his disciples to expect tribulation, to expect suffering, to expect even persecution. And as Christians, we don't just have to navigate normal suffering because of this fallen world, but we have the principalities and powers of darkness working against us. We want to destroy us and take us out of the fight of advancing God's mission. And so refuting myth one, no amount of right living or holy living will protect you from suffering in this life. And if anything, being a Christian means you might actually suffer more. Myth two. I'm suffering because of the sin in my life. The reason these bad things are happening to me is because I did this. I did this bad thing. Sometimes as Christians, we think that if we're suffering, it's because God is punishing us. He's getting even. He's taking it out on us. Many of us in this room have felt that way, that, our screw, uh, that the problems in our life are a result of our own screw-ups. We think God is punishing us. Are you trying to get our attention to correct some error in our life? Now, let me be clear. Now, this is a little complicated, so let me be clear. If you are in Christ, God is never going to punish you, ever, because you were already punished 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross in Christ, okay? Punishment has been dealt out in full. But it is true that sometimes God does use trials and difficulty and hardship in our life to get our attention. That is true. Especially if we're walking in unrepentance on something and rebelling against God in some area, some area, right? Like God put Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days to wake him up, right? Sometimes God does that. When we're just ignorant and doing the wrong thing, sometimes like, okay, you're going to go sleep in the belly of a whale for three days. That happens. But that's not always the case. The type of suffering Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 is not in response to anything. Think about Job in the Old Testament. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Job about suffering. And God makes it clear that Job is not suffering because he did anything wrong. Jesus suffered more than anyone, and Jesus certainly did not do anything wrong. See, most of the suffering in our lives is because we live in a world that is just broken. We live in this world that is cursed. Most of our suffering is not the result of our actions, but a result of the curse in this broken world. 
You see, if, you're, if you are going through some sort of trial, some sort of suffering because of your sin, and it's the discipline of God trying to wake you up, he's trying to put you in the belly of a whale, then it is going to be very obvious. Jonah knew why he was in the whale of the fish, in the belly of the whale. He knew why he was there, right? The whole point of God putting difficulty, difficult things in our life is to wake us up to that reality. When my kids do something wrong and I'm disciplining them, they quickly understand why they are being disciplined. I do not let them live in mystery as why they are being in trouble, right? Why, are you, why am I getting in trouble, Dad? You'll find out later. No. They understand. If you have no idea why the suffering has happened, if God has not made it clear to you that you've done this thing and, uh, and he's trying to wake you up to that, then don't look at your suffering and try to blame yourself. Don't look at your suffering, sit and blame yourself and feel guilt and try to figure out what you did wrong that caused these things to happen. If God sends suffering because of sin, it will be quickly made known to you what the issue is. If you don't know, the most likely reason for your suffering has nothing to do with you and simply the reality that this world we live in is broken. So don't blame yourself. Myth three. You will see good come from your suffering. Now the wording here is important. You will see good come from your suffering. It's a hard one and it's one of the ways we often try to comfort people in the midst of suffering, right? And it's Usually not very helpful. When people are in pain, we say to them, well, you know, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. So I know it's hard right now, but God's going to use it for good. And this person standing beside their, their mother's casket like, really? And sometimes you, you hear that and you look around for years. Where is the good that God was bringing out of this suffering, out of this bad situation? And you look, and you look, and you look, and sometimes you go your whole life, and you never see it. Now, sometimes we do, right? Sometimes we see an alcoholic turn his life around after a bad car accident. Or maybe a painful breakup in your life changed the type of person you dated and enabled you to find a, a good spouse. Sometimes we discover how a painful or confusing chapter of our lives actually prepared us for something later. We didn't realize how that difficult thing we walked through was actually preparing us for the next stage of life. Sometimes we see good in our suffering. Sometimes we see the good suffering produces. But a lot of times we don't see it. A lot of times we won't see it until we get to the other side of eternity. Paul writes, the glory that is going, that's future tense, going to be revealed in us. Right? It's in the future. He talks about hope. That it, hope is not something that is seen, right? You don't, we don't see the hope. We wait for it with patience. He says these things because even though it is true, and it is absolutely true that God is working all things for good. He is using all of your suffering, all of the hard things in your life for good. The myth says that I'll always see the good on this side of heaven. And we won't always see it. We won't always see the good. But we can trust that God, who is the author of our stories, is writing them in such a way that there is no suffering ever wasted. That there are no failures, no mistakes, no pain that is ever wasted. 
Instead, it is all being used for good somewhere. And often in ourselves, and that, that, that is good thing to know, and it is a thing that can help us navigate suffering, right? It is a helpful thing. It is a helpful thing to know that God is using these things for good. But it is a myth to think that I'm always going to see it. I'm always going to know it. Which is why Paul writes in verse 24, he says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? You know, as Christians, we say we live by faith and not by sight. But when those moments of suffering come, those moments where we don't understand why these things are happening, why are these bad things happening in my life? And we can't say, okay, this suffering, I, I can deal with this because I see this bad thing led to this. When we can't see it, when we're confused and we, we can't see the big picture, how, how do we often respond? But we, we throw our hands up in the air in frustration and we say, God, are you even there? Are you even a part of this? Why are you doing this? That doesn't make any sense to me. We say we want to live by faith, but really we want to live by sight. Because we want to understand, we want to see why every bad thing is happening, why every difficult thing is happening. We want to be able to say, oh yeah, I see it, I get it. That makes sense, God, good work. I see how this bad thing led to this, and this is better. Good job. We think that seeing the plan will somehow lessen the sting of our suffering. And not seeing or understanding the plan makes us question if God is even there. That's not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. That's saying I can only do this if God, if you give me your vision. But faith means trusting in God even when you can't see him. Faith means trusting in God, trusting in his goodness and his character, right? Trusting in who you know him to be even when you cannot see him. Faith is waiting patiently till the end to see and experience all the answers to your questions. Have you ever heard of the story about the bird who flew south for the winter? Now, I'm not talking about snowbirds or all you guys who, you know, go to Florida for the winter. But a little bird was flying south for the winter, and it was so cold that the bird froze in the air and fell to the ground in a large field. And while he was laying there, a cow came by and dropped some dung on him. And as the frozen bird lay there in the pile of cow dung, he began to realize it was warming up. He was warm. That the dung was actually thawing him out. And he lay there all warm and happy, and soon he began to sing for joy, chirping. And a passing cat heard the bird singing and came to investigate. Following the sound, the cat discovered the bird under the pile of cow dung and promptly dug him out and ate him. <laughs> Three lessons from this little parable. One, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Two, not everyone... Who digs you out is your friend. And three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your mouth shut. You see, our perspective 
on our lives in the midst of our suffering or in the midst of manure, in the midst of difficult things, our perspective is so small. We only see what's immediately right in front of us. We have no idea what is actually going on in the world and how everything is actually connected. So in the midst of suffering, it is best to not jump to conclusions. It is best to be patient and trust in the goodness and wisdom and plan of God who is working for your good. The point is, sometimes you got to get to the end of the chapter or the end of the story before you see the suffering. Or the manure that you're sitting in was actually for your good. You just couldn't see that sitting in that suffering. You couldn't see that sitting in that dung, in that manure, was for your good. Sometimes you need to keep your mouth shut and wait to see how it all works out. See, the best books and the best shows and the best movies, the best stories, are those that at the beginning create tension. Right? They, they ask questions or present problems that don't get answered until the very end. Sometimes the end of the book, sometimes the end of the series, end of a season. The end of the book or the end of the season and the end of a series. Uh, the, when we get there, the whole time we've been asking these questions. Waiting on answers. Hoping that there are answers. And if you're like me, you're, you're reading or you're, you're watching and you're wondering, did the author forget about this problem? Because like, I've gotten four more chapters past this one and I ain't got an answer yet. And I need it now. Right? I'm two seasons in, and I need answers to these questions. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm 20 seasons in on Grey's Anatomy or whatever, and I need an answer to whatever question. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. I just know there's a lot of seasons. <coughs> and we get frustrated because our, our questions aren't answered yet, but most things aren't resolved till the end. That's how good stories work. They ask questions, great tensions at the beginning, and they don't answer them till the end. And that is not just how good stories work. That's how our lives work. And so we have to avoid the temptation to declare that nothing makes sense until you have gotten to God's finale of the whole story. So you got to avoid the temptation to declare in the moment, like the bird, that this doesn't make sense while I'm sitting in this cow dung. It doesn't make sense while I'm enduring this suffering. It doesn't make sense why this is happening. We have to avoid the temptation to declare that. We get to the end and can look back and go, oh, oh, actually sitting in the cow dung was for my good. Oh, actually that suffering was for my good. Just in the moment, I couldn't see it. So we must avoid the, attention, the te- temptation to speak and cast judgment. Because in the end, you will see the answers you've always been longing for. The tension resolved. We'll see it and we'll go, oh, that makes perfect sense. So those are the three myths. Now what hope do we have? What hope do we have to navigate suffering in this world? One, hope one, all things are working to make me more like Jesus. When you read verse 28 in its context, it tells us that all things are working together for good. And that's not true for everyone. Who are the people that can say all things are working for good? Well, the text says it is those who are called according to God's purpose. Well, who is that? 
Well, the simple answer is that they are followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus can claim these truths. And what does it say is the good that is being worked for all of those who follow Jesus? The good is from verse 29. That God predestined, don't get scared about that word, it just means that God determined beforehand, okay? God predestined to conform you into, G, into the image of Jesus, into the image of his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Because we've been adopted into his family, that was last week's sermon. Now in the midst of this suffering, God is using it all for this ultimate purpose of making me like Jesus. Right, that's what he's doing. He's brought me into his family, and now he's conforming us into the image of Jesus. And that has been his plan from the beginning of time. You are being refined through fire. Just like when you make pottery, you have to place the, the clay into a kiln and heat it up super hot so that it hardens and hold its, holds its new shape. In the same way, God is putting us in a kiln. He is using the suffering in our life to mold us and shape us and form us into something beautiful, but it's a little hot till we get there. It's a little difficult until we get there. You see, there will come a time, if you submit to God in faith, when you will see that all the painful chapters of your life, all the heartaches and the tears, the disabilities, all of the disadvantages and the disappointments, even those seasons of boredom and loneliness were used by God for one purpose, and that is to mold you into the image of Jesus. Instead of only asking God to get you out of the trouble, we should also ask him what you should get out of the trouble. Does that make sense? Instead of just asking God, get me out of this trouble, in the midst of suffering, we need to ask God, God, what are you wanting me to get out of this? What are you trying to teach me? What, are you, what do you want me to get out of going through this? What am I supposed to learn? How am I supposed to change? We need to say, God, what are you doing here? How are you leveraging this crisis for my good? How are you using this in my life? When Joseph in the Old Testament, you remember the story where he's got these 11 brothers and they hate him and, and they plot together and they throw him into this pit and sell him into slavery? Like, in that moment, things are difficult for Joseph, right? I've been betrayed by my family. I've been sold as a slave. Looking in that moment, you can't say how God, God could do any good out of this. But when you get to the end of the story, now you see Joseph in second command of all of Egypt and his brothers bowing down before him. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? And so you see that all along, God was working in, in Joseph's life to fix some things bad in Joseph and to save Joseph's whole family. Save his father and his whole family. But in the moment, it just feels like despair and hopelessness. And it's hard to see that God actually has a plan. It's like when you watch Karate Kid, right? And you're looking at Daniel's son, and he's, and he's waxing the cars, right? And he's painting the walls, and he's sanding the floors. And Daniel's asking, this has no, I came here to learn karate. I ain't, I ain't come here to wax the cars and to paint the walls and to sand the floor. He, see, he doesn't think it has anything to do with it. It's disconnected. Until he realizes that he's been learning karate all along. 
when someone tries to punch them. Wow. Paint the wall, right? Wax on. And he's like, whoa, what are my hands doing, right? And sometimes it's the same for us. We go through suffering. We're like, God, how could you be using this at all in my life? And then we see, oh, I see now how you were molding me, preparing me, changing me, making me more like Jesus. One day you will see that everything in your life, especially the hard things, the mistakes, the pain, the suffering, the challenges, the difficult seasons, you will see that all of those things were being used by God to make you like Jesus. Our second hope. Our first hope is that our, our, our suffering is not pointless. He's making us like Jesus. Our second hope is that our stories end in complete redemption. One of the fascinating parts of this passage is, that, is the personification of creation. That is, creation is meant to seem like a person. And I love how Paul describes creation itself, like the rocks and the dirt and the animals, the clouds, the oceans, the stars, that they're all of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Creation is groaning in in pain, longing for the day of final redemption to come. And then he says that it's not just creation who is groaning the groans of birth pains, but that we are as well. And that we are with creation groaning in the pains of childbirth awaiting this final redemption. You know, there are different types of groans and different types of screams. If you are at the hospital and you walk by the ICU section or the hospice section of a hospital, those screams and those groans are often the groans of hopelessness and despair. They are the cries of family who have lost someone who is gone. They are the screams of loved ones who have now passed. Or they are the screams of those in pain fighting to live another breath. But if you walk by the maternity ward and you hear the groans and the screams of a mother, you know that she is in pain. You know that she is hurting. But you know that shortly all of that groaning and all of that pain and all of those screams will soon become a distant memory when she holds her newborn babe in her arms. And the joy of that moment, it doesn't erase the pain she just went through, but also the pain's not worth comparing to the joy she now has in her arms, right? Isn't that Paul's point? Guys, we all, all of us and the creation itself have been aching and groaning because this world doesn't pull its punches. That this world is hard and it doesn't stop coming for us. And so we suffer and we hurt and it seems like evil in this world is always going to come for us and it's always going to win. And so we scream and we long and we groan because we, we know this isn't the end of the story. We don't groan. Like those in the ICU, we groan like those in the maternity ward because we know that there is a joy coming. We don't groan and scream and ache as those without hope. We groan and scream and ache as knowing that there is a glory that is coming. And once we have that glory, that the, that the current present sufferings won't be worth comparing to what we're, what's coming for us. Because the redemption that is coming is a full, complete redemption. The end of our stories does not end in heaven. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says it this way. He says, heaven is important 
It's just not the end of the world. Literally. Because our stories don't end up in the clouds. They end with the dirt underneath your feet right now. They end in a resurrection. Or might say they actually truly begin in a resurrection. A resurrection where our whole bodies are restored. The curse of sin removed. That everything broken in the world is fixed and we live in a world we've always longed for. A redemption that is coming that will take every broken and vile thing in this world and make it beautiful again. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporary suffering that no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. There is no pain, no mistake, no suffering, no sin committed against you that will ever be wasted. God wastes nothing. He uses everything for your good. He's using everything to mold you into the image of Jesus. He will make all your wounds, all your scars, and every sad thing come untrue. He will work them backward and turn even your worst scars into beauty marks. Pastor and theologian John Piper once said, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is your current affliction light, light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but every second of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery and the path of obedience is producing a peculiar peculiar glory that you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism, slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. I love the way Joni uh, Erickson Tata says that she, she was paralyzed as a teenager. We've talked about her story before. In a diving accident, she was paralyzed when she was young, and she's lived her whole life, 70 years, as a quadriplegic. And she wrote this. She said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. And now notice I'll be walking, and I'm going to push my, my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus, and I'm going to thank him for every character-refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell. Because it was only needed and relevant because of the wreckage of sin in this world. And I don't need it anymore. When great moments of pain and suffering come, don't cry out, this is meaningless. And said, see, that the cruelness and the curse of this world, that God is fixing it. And that everything is working for an eternal weight of glory. Paul is not trying to minimize our pain or the suffering we go through. He is simply trying to show us that once we get this glory, this redemption that is coming, when we look back on the suffering in our lives, it will be so small compared to that glory that we have in Christ. It's so small that it won't be worth comparing. Like a mother looking back on her labor pains, they are not worth comparing to the joys of the child in her arms. So too the pains of this world are not worth comparing to the world that awaits us in the kingdom of God. There's a full redemption. Our third hope is that in the meantime, the Holy Spirit prays for you. Right? We need hope not just in the future, but we need hope right now. 
One of the things that we can rest in the middle of our suffering is that we do not have to pray the exact right things to get God to help us. Right? We don't have to know the right magic words to get God to come intervene. In verse 26 and 27, it says that in those moments of suffering, when we do not know how to pray, that God, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you, is praying on your behalf. He is praying with groans too deep for words, meaning he understands your suffering. He understands what you are going through, and he is approaching the throne room of your Father, God, on on your behalf to accomplish the will of God in your life. To understand, you do not have to, in the midst of suffering, compete for God's attention. If you are suffering, if your suffering is less than your friends, like if your suffering isn't as big of a deal as your friends, if your suffering isn't as big a deal as what other people are going through, you are not competing against the worst atrocities in the world for God's attention. The great thing about God is that he can do it all at the same time. The Holy Spirit has you, all of your concerns, all of your fears, all your worries in his mind. And he's going to the Father, not for everybody, for you. He goes to the Father for you. When you don't even know what to pray or have the strength to pray, he prays for you. The Spirit goes to the Father for you. When you cannot mutter a word, God is working. Our fourth hope. What God starts, God finishes. One of the most encouraging passages, uh, I think, in the world is verses 29 through 30, and it's often called the golden chain of redemption. It is called that because there is no breakage from beginning to end in this chain of events. Verse 29, he says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So everyone in whom God begins his work, he finishes his work. There is no one left behind. There is no one who falls through the cracks. There is no one he forgets about. There is no one he loses. You can't screw it up because God is doing the work and God will not let you go. Paul is saying that sometimes in the midst of suffering, you might feel like you are barely hanging on. But have assurance That what God started in you, he will finish. That if God has called you by his grace, if you are justified, meaning you've been made right with God through the gospel, then in the end, you will be glorified. When you feel like you cannot hold on to God, when you feel like your grip is slipping, rest, brothers and sisters, because God is holding on to you. When you feel like you are barely holding on to him, rest assured he's holding on to you. God chose to love you. God chose to save you. God chose to glorify you. He chose to do all of these things before you were righteous, while we were still sinners. And if he chose to do all these things in your life, he's not going to drop you in the midst of your suffering or your pain or when you're having a hard time. He loves you, and that means he's never going to leave you, no matter what. And so here is the question so many of us ask. How do we know God loves us in the midst of suffering? How do we know God loves us in the midst of suffering? It's a great question because it seems like that if God loved us, he wouldn't let this suffering happen, right? That's the the number one reason people leave the faith. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer. Number one reason people don't believe in Christianity. And and, And to be clear, 
We do not know exactly why God has chosen to allow evil and suffering in the world. But we do know this. We know that if God did not care about our suffering, care about us and our suffering, then why would he come to the earth himself and suffer himself, enter our suffering? Why would he come and suffer himself if not to show his love for us by suffering and in the suffering vanquish suffering and evil forever? You see, if God, here's the problem. If God answered the prayer to end suffering, we prayed, God, would you end suffering forever? And he answered it right now before he's made all things new. If we asked him to erase and remove every broken, evil, bad thing in the world, where would he stop erasing? If he looked at the canvas of the world and was going to remove all the suffering and he was going to erase it, where would he stop erasing? You see, he would have to erase until there was nothing left. Ridding the world of evil means ridding the world of you. And God in his compassion and his love has not been willing to rid the world of you to make evil go away. So instead of erasing evil, he chose to reverse it, fix it. There's an interesting verse, passage in verse 20. It says, But creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from this bondage of corruption. The passage tells us that Genesis 3, the fall, this brokenness, was by no accident. That it didn't catch God off guard. It didn't like, no, Adam, I didn't know you were going to eat that apple. Oh, my gosh, I didn't see this coming. But it was no surprise, but it's part of the plan of God. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that angels can't understand the gospel. That they long to look into the gospel and they can't. can't get it. Right, because they don't understand what it means to fall, to sin, to struggle, and to be rescued. They don't understand the love of God. They've never experienced it. The love of God is something that we can only understand when, when, when you see God dying on your behalf, taking the penalty of the crimes you've committed. And when you see God willing to take the punishment for your crimes, you see love in a way you could have never seen it before. And the angels seem to think that the journey of suffering, to see the love of God and know the love of God, makes it worth it. And Paul seems to think that the future glory is so amazing that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing. So maybe we should be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. Maybe I don't have to have all of the answers to the mysteries of the universe and to why I'm suffering. Maybe I can just trust in the one who suffered in my place because he loved me. Maybe I can trust in the one who's taking me to a home where there will be no more suffering. The Bible tells us that every time we get together, we're supposed to take this meal called the Lord's Supper. And when we take it, we look in two directions. One, we look back at a cross, a cross that God suffered with us and for us, but also that we're supposed to look forward. We look forward to a day where there will be no more suffering, no more bloodshed, and that we will feast with our family, where the wine will flow, and we will feast and feast, 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 where all things will be set right. And so as we take this meal together this morning, look backward at the price it paid for God to not erase the world, but fix it, and look forward to the day that he finally does it and finally sets it right, and we can rest 
and suffer no more. This morning, if you belong to Jesus, take this feast with us and let's celebrate what he's done and what he's doing. But if you've not taken hold of Christ, if, he's, if you don't belong to him this morning, take hold of Christ for the first time. We sing in a few moments, I'm going to stand over here. If you do not know Jesus, man, come up here and let me show you how to, how to know him. So that your story can be one that doesn't end in sadness, but ends in happily ever after. That can end in the joy and the glory. The sufferings now aren't worth comparing to. That can be part of your story. But only through Jesus. Only through his work and what he's done. Without him, it's like you get erased. But with him, you get to be made new. Father, this morning, all of us have different stories in this room. All of us have walked through different things, have walked through different sorts of suffering and pain. Some of it our own fault and the fruit of our own misdeeds. Some of it sins done against us. People have wronged us and hurt us. Some suffering just, just seems random. It was no one's fault. It just things happen. But God, whatever suffering we walk through, whether it's our fault, fault of another, seemingly random. God, we know that you don't waste it. We know that you use it. And Lord, for those in this room right now, which is many of us who are suffering on all different kinds of levels, you give us comfort and peace knowing that you're on our side, that you're working in us, that you're working for us, that you're making us like Jesus, that you're restoring the whole world and that one day all things will be set right. Would you give us the comfort now to be able to navigate this suffering with our head held high, knowing the God of the universe is on our side, working all things for good. Father, for those in this room who, who don't know you, who are suffering and, and there's no meaning behind it because there's, but you're not being made in the likeness of Jesus. You're not headed toward a glory where the sufferings now aren't worth being compared to. Instead, you are suffering and you are in pain. And all that suffering, all that pain is only going to get worse. And at the end, on the other side of eternity, it will only get worse. And there's no hope. You have hope this morning. That all your suffering will not be in vain. All your pain, all your hurt will not be in vain. But it will be used to be turned into a greater weight of glory. Into something beautiful. If this morning you do not claim Christ, if you don't know, if you're religious or good but not know Jesus, come to me this morning. Come to somebody this morning and say, Brent, I want to know Jesus because I want my suffering to matter. I want my pain to matter. I want him to use it for good. This morning he welcomes you with open arms. Sins, warts, mistakes, past and all, he'll make you his child. For right now, we're going to pass out these elements as we sing this first half of this song. Hold those, don't, don't eat them yet. Wait, we're going to take them all together. But if you don't know Christ, let that plate pass by you. Don't take this meal. The Bible warns that you'll drink judgment on yourself if you do. Let's take the, get these, we'll take it together in just a moment.